Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast today. So I had this title of this book come across my desk, the Psycho, A Psychomagic Journey to Awaken Lucid Dream Consciousness. And I said to this publicist, yes, book this person on my show. I haven't talked about lucid dreaming in a very long time, and I am really excited to explore this topic a little bit deeper. And lo and behold, synchronicity. So another guest, if you guys are listening to the podcast in chronological order here, our last guest, Edward Tick, who worked with veterans, was also talking about bringing the veterans to Egypt in the sound in or the sleep incubation places to help them heal from their trauma. And we're going to learn, I think, even a little bit more about that. So my guest today is Sarah James, and she has been an enthusiastic lucid dreamer since childhood. She is a writer, public speaker, and sleep hypnosis workshop facilitator. She runs Explorers Egyptology, an online lecture series, and with Carl Hayden Smith operates the Seventh Ray, a virtual reality mystery school. She is also producer and co-host for the Anthony Peak Consciousness Hour podcast. And we actually had, I think, Anthony Peak on the podcast many years ago. So that was a really brilliant conversation. And she is currently working with Rupert Sheldrake and the British Pilgrimage Trust to reinvigorate the practice of dream incubation at sacred sites. So she's over in the UK and it's morning here in New York, afternoon for her. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, really nice to have you. So the first time that I had actually heard about dream incubation, like I was saying in the intro here, was with my last guest. And I had him on because he was working with veterans and I used to work with veterans as well. And but I had no idea that he was doing that work. So I got a little taste for it for the very first time a couple of weeks ago. So I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about the work that you're doing and get your take on it, because he was working specifically with trying to bring veterans there to help heal their PTSD. So I'm curious to see what you are using the dream incubation for. And I think we're going to get into the conversation of how we can use lucid dreaming to help heal and for div- divination. And and I'd love to start off by learning about your personal experience with lucid dreaming and really what got you into all of this. Well, I've always been into it since I was a kid. So I had a lot of lucid dreams as a child. I remember my early dream experiences. And I guess it's always been like a really strong theme in my life is enjoying my dream experiences. And as a child, my two kind of driving passions was this idea that something about the lucid dream state, like that overview effect that you get made me feel like you don't ever die. And the other aspect of it, it was, I just found it deeply creative. So I always wanted to be a film director and record my dreams, you know, a lazy film director, basically develop a machine that could record your dreams. And then you could just play that in cinemas. So <laughs> I love that. That was, 
no interest in it. And I guess, you know, throughout my life, because I've always been into dreams, I've always read any books I found about dreams. I've always been into films that are about dreams, books and like stories. I love art that's inspired by dreams. I always love surreal art and magical realism fiction and things like that. So so it's kind of been a bit of a feedback, which I think is a big part of the lucid experience, actually. If you can create this feedback between your waking and dreaming life, it becomes easier to kind of consciously navigate those dream spaces when you're there because you're more aware of the content that's being generated in that space. I've been doing this precognitive dream study, actually, the last couple of days. For I think it's a parapsychology department at a university, but I actually have to admit I haven't looked into what university you're doing it. But that's quite interesting because I'm recording my dreams in my new detail. And one of the things I realize quite often with dreams is if you have a really good recollection of a night spent dreaming, because one thing with lucidity is actually you remember lucidity very vividly. They don't, those lucid dreams don't evaporate upon waking like ordinary dreams. So if at any point you've been lucid during the night, those memories will be there. You don't necessarily have to write them down. And it's a, it's a hallmark of lucidity is that you remember them very well. So. I was, I've been writing down all of my dreams in great detail. And it, you know, it occurs to me that actually almost every single night you dream about everything and anything, you know, everything and anything. There's like so much in there. It's really like a tapestry of your life. And I noticed someone posting recently about the experience of deja vu in a dream. And I think this is because in the lucid state, it feels like you can remember everything all at once. I like that recent film that came out, Everything Everywhere All at Once. It really reminded me actually of the lucid dream experience. So, so yeah, I've just, it's been my passion for as long as I can remember, dreaming in particular. And then I've got a daughter who's actually 15 now, but when she was born, I had like two years of pretty bad sleep deprivation. And that was the thing that actually made me realize how valuable sleeping and dreaming was because I felt like I was losing my marbles. I didn't feel like myself at all. I felt ill all the time. I felt incredibly anxious and I'd never experienced anxiety up until that point. So once I got over that sleep deprivation and realized like this kind of rich, deeply fulfilling role that dreaming plays for me in particular, because it is such a kind of like, it's the ultimate creative expression. It's deeply satisfying. You can have like beautiful experiences in dreams. So once I got that back after that two years of sleep deprivation, I was so grateful and so much more appreciative of it because I'd always taken it for granted that I started to study it like more kind of academically, I suppose. And I met someone who's a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Greenwich, Dr. David Luke, and he specializes in what he calls exceptional human experience. And we got onto the subject of lucid dreaming and he was telling me about just having visited a sleep temple that existed in England. It was, a, it was actually a British Romano sleep temple, this one. And that just piqued my curiosity completely. So then I was like, wow, there's this tradition of using dreams for healing and creative purposes that goes back into the deepest history. And I've always been a big fan of ancient culture and philosophy. So to me, that was it. I was just decided then what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I want to reactivate the sleep temples of the world. And I actually do think that sleeping and dreams can massively contribute to like a healthy society. And it's part of what we should all have, which is a holistic healthcare system that, you know, sleep, sleep and dream quality is part of any, any mental illness and physical illness and, and sleep deprivation is rife at the moment. So it's no surprise that we have this like massive explosion in all kinds of mental health conditions to me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And 
I had no idea that there were these sleep, sleep temples. So I love the fact that you have this mission that you want to bring them back here and activate them because, you know, I did mental health therapy for many, many years. And I mean, that's one of the things that goes first, right? Are people sleep? And if you look at all of the over-the-counter medications trying to induce sleep, I mean, it's like a billion-dollar market out there of, you know, people just trying to get a good night's sleep. It's it's so needed. So I, I don't want to assume that all of our listeners know what lucid dreaming is. Could you just give us an example of maybe what it is, a definition of it, and also how do people know for sure? Maybe you can give one of your own examples of what's the difference between like a dream or maybe a visitation with a deceased loved one compared to what a lucid dream is? Well, this is a very interesting question. And for many years, lucid dreaming was thought to be a kind of like anecdotal, someone's, you know, people having funny ideas about stuff. But scientifically, it's shown to be a dreaming state whereby your frontal cortex is activated, which means you can you can use a self-reflection, critical thinking. You're aware of the fact that you're in a dream. For me, it's about remembering or, you know, remembering that you're within a dream and who you are. and but a big part of it for me as well is this state of elation and bliss and ecstasy that you can get. And this is why I find the ancient references to lucid dreaming kind of more fascinating because obviously we don't know, they don't have a word for lucidity in the same way, but they describe these dreams that have particular qualities. And their way of describing them as usually is that they're divine, they're sent by divine beings. And, um, you know, one of my tips for people when they come to workshops is one thing I often say to people is that. One of the things that helps you have lucid dreams is having a massive crush on someone. And when you've got a really massive crush on someone and you see them in your dream, you get excited and that can sometimes make you become lucid. And I actually think that this would have been the, a similar principle in terms of why ancient people, when they dreamt of gods and goddesses, would have got so excited because they were seeing this person, this figure that they adored, and that would have made them become lucid. But I also think that our, our systems, our kind of pathways relating to memory function and the memory experience for modern humans is different to our ancient ancestors. And I think they would probably have had more access to lucid dreams. And I think they would have been more ordinary for ancient people because of the way they remembered things that were oral and association. And if you think we write everything down now and we use a lot of devices, even within my lifetime, People are saying that they aren't remembering their dreams as much from when I was younger and people used to talk about their dreams a lot more. And I've noticed now, and especially in workshops, people will come to the workshop and say they can never, they can't remember a single dream they've ever had. And I think that this is a result of the use of technology and devices and light pollution and the number of distractions and, you know, the... This idea of technology ushering this era of leisure hasn't really happened, has it? It's like we're more, we're slaves to our devices way more than we ever were. Right. Yeah. So with that being said, what are your thoughts just in regards to like consciousness and where our consciousness goes in the dream state? And is the dream state actually a true real reality that just has like a different set of rules and our consciousness is able to be in this state and do things, but it's very real as if we're here back on earth and in our physical body. Or is it really just something ethereal out there and not a real place per se? I think there's all different kinds of aspects to it. And I guess my kind of overarching theory is that consciousness is a field and it extends beyond the human body. 
And therefore, in certain dream states, we're able to access collective unconscious or past or future memories. I mean, it's very, very interesting to me that ancient dream interpretation is completely preoccupied with predicting the future. So that speaks volume as to the perception of time and the nature of reality for ancient people. Because, you know, our modern dream interpretation is all kind of psychoanalysis and working out what kind of childhood hangups or issues or, you know, all, all these kinds of things that just didn't get a look in in the ancient world. It was all about predicting the future and about the dream state being this particular kind of oracular trance, I guess. But then also, um, it's interesting to think about how beliefs influence experiences because ancient ideas about dreaming usually involve this idea that when you dream, you go to this other world and that other world is where um, the dead and the divine beings reside. And so this is how you're able to extract information about the future because you're accessing this other reality. Um, and if you look at something like nightmares for, in a lot of ancient cultures, nightmares are considered to be like personified dream beings that come upon you in the night. So you're giving them like outside agency. They have their own volition and they're therefore much more terrifying than the way we think of nightmares now as being like brain generated from bad things, you know, things that have happened to us. So there's all those kinds of beliefs that would then have influenced the experience itself. I guess for me, I, the way I experience dreams, because I have so many dreams where I'm aware of the fact that I'm in the dream space, I can see that it's it's me navigating this kind of um, psychic architecture. It's my childhood home. It's like various sort of landforms and architectural features and worlds and places that I have generated in my imagination to become a kind of physical and visible representation of my soul and of my life on earth. So I'm very conscious of the fact that I recognize these places and they're places that I have visited in my dreams since I was a child. And when I analyze them, I can see that they've come from the things that I've been interested in or the places that I've been to or places that I've thought about going to and seen photographs of. So I was saying recently in my dream, there's this red velvet underground and it never occurred to me as a kid that I was into the Velvet Underground. And so I created this whole um, uh, space that was this underground shopping mall and it was all decorated in red velvet. And so this is one of the interesting things about ancient dream interpretation as well is usually it relies heavily on homophones and wordplay and puns. So the dreams were just interpreted in a very different way. It was like using language to create almost like a kind of mirror meaning. So quite often as well, there's in dreams, there's this kind of law of opposites. If you dream about one thing that seems really negative, it means something really positive because the dream world is perhaps this mirror dimension. So so there's lots, there's lots to it. I mean, I think definitely I have had dreams where they feel something magical and special beyond my existence as a single individual human being. But I think that's the, na the nature of reality is that I think everything in the cosmos is interconnected. So in certain divine dream states, I feel like people have access to that. Now, I, as you were saying, like you've been dreaming of some of the same places since you were younger. Is your dream state to the point where you are going into the same type of dream state? Or are you constantly exploring 
different things that you haven't seen? Or is this more of what people might think would be like a repetitive dream or a reoccurring dream? Or is this kind of like a dream space that you've set up that you go into? Yeah, no, it's not really a recurring dream. There are certain sort of motifs and themes and symbols, but it's it's like this other world that I've created. And I think that it's probably because I was really into stories about dreams that I've created this kind of imaginal map, like Lord of the Rings or Alice in Wonderland. I was really into Narnia when I was a kid. So I think that I've created this dream space. And it was interesting for me because Anthony Peake, when we work on the Consciousness Hour show, one of our guests, one of my favorite guests was Rebecca Sharrock, who is an Australian woman who has highly superior autobiographical memory. And this means that she can remember like everything that's ever happened to her in her entire life. She's autistic and she's synesthetic as well, which is interesting because to me that suggests that her brain is basically like the neural pathway pruning back that would usually occur during puberty kind of hasn't happened. Her brain is like wide open. So she's like fully experiencing everything. Mostly the me- all of the memories kind of have some sort of emotional content quite often, but you can say to her every single day of her life so far, what happened on this day and she can remember it. And when she was describing the process, it was like, it's color coded for her. And it's more than just a, a, it's more than just a kind of knowing what happened. It's like an emotional charge and trigger to re almost remember the experience as it happened. So it's, it's such an interesting thing. And I think synesthesia plays an interesting part in this as well, because that suggests this sort of interconnected brain regions, you know, which would, I think young people are more synesthetic than older people. And as we get older and our neuronal pathways kind of like settle into certain ruts and niches, we don't have this like full brain experience of drinking in every little bit of information as we walk around in the world like children do. And I think this is another big part of why children generally have more lucid dreams is because they exist in this sponge type um, playing and imaginal consciousness way all the time. Like, you know, I've spoken quite a few times about how when I was a kid, I remember playing imaginary games. And that's always been my favorite type of play, actually, is imagining that I'm somewhere and kind of I can see it as I'm playing. And visual imagination has a big part in your ability to recall dreams. And I think this is probably a big reason why a lot of people don't remember dreams is because they don't have a a particularly visual imagination. So that's something you can encourage to improve dream recall because it's not just about, you know, people say, write down your dreams when you wake up. I think a part of it is like visually remembering it. So with your eyes closed, actually kind of reworking it in your mind because you have to commit it to conscious memory. Now, I bet some people are thinking like, how do you wake up the next day and actually feel rested? I've had some people say like their dream space can be so active that they actually feel exhausted when they wake up and like they really feel like they weren't ever really sleeping because they were so awake in their dream. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. So that's kind of like hinting at certain parasomnias because I do think that you should feel rested when you wake up from a dream. And I actually feel most rested when I wake up from a lucid dream. Because for me, lucid dreams, as I say, they have this component of just feeling like absolute ecstasy. So there's this incredible healing effect that I feel throughout my body. And one thing with lucid dreaming as well, for most people, a lucid dream will occur in that final stage of REM before waking up. So the brain prioritizes deep sleep and deep rest to undergo all of that cellular renewal and everything. So 
you know, you want to be getting deep sleep in as well. And some people may be lucid dreaming because they have a lot of light sleep and therefore not getting the deep rest that they necessarily need. So it is really important to get that deep rest. I always would say like the best tool for lucid dreaming is just sleeping a decent amount. So you have that extra hour in bed where you're, you could get up, but if you go back into a dream, you're, that's when you're most likely to have a lucid dream or during an afternoon nap. But, but yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I know people, people have said that to me as well. And I'm not sure whether, you know, what that's about in terms of, you know, why aren't they feeling rested if they're having these deep sleeps? I said, su- I suspect they're just not having enough deep sleep. They're having mostly light REM. Okay. Yeah. Cause I've, I've heard all of the above. I don't dream at all. I can't remember my dreams. I remember my dreams so vividly. I feel like I don't sleep at night. So, and I had a really crazy dream right before I woke up today too. So maybe I'm supposed to share it with you. I'm not sure, but it was so vivid. It was a little disturbing, but it was, I, we were looking outside a window. I had like a couple people with me and all of a sudden these two birds came and they were brilliant red and one was a cardinal. And the other one looked like a turkey vulture, but turkey vultures here are black, right? But it was red, but it was the size of the turkey vulture. And the people that were with me in this room, we were like, oh my God, look at how close they are. And the vibrance of the red was amazing. And then all of a sudden, the turkey vulture goes and there's a pigeon on like another wire and it starts to eat it. It takes the pigeon down and then everyone in the room just gasped. And we were like, oh my God. And then I woke up. And I was like, that's a really funky dream. So I don't know if you have any interpretation with that or, and I remember it, like I have, like you said, the lucidity, you don't necessarily forget. I was kind of shocked in the dream, like, whoa, that was intense and wasn't expecting that to happen. And, you know, so, and it's, you know, I've been awake for about four hours now and I can still see it like it's just happening. That's great. Can I ask one question? Because I dream a lot about birds. I was in the young ornithologist when I was a kid. And so birds have often been my sort of dream symbols. And one thing I notice about birds and actually all kind of small things in dreams, in lucid dreams, is that they change, their scale changes according to like how you look at them. So because you want to see them, they appear much bigger than normal life. So a cardinal for me is like a toddler size. And a vulture would be like ginormous. So I don't know whether they were like bigger than normal size, but that's they were. Dreams, yeah. Um, so it's it's like your attention attenuates the scale of things, which is something that makes me question like those interpretations of cave art being like about hallucinogens or about alien visitations, because I think that um, dreams have this similar effect on scale and actually people may be drawing insects, but human size, because that's how they're seeing them in the dream state. Anyway. So a cardinal is often thought to be like a symbol of a deceased person, a spirit visiting you. Like I know that there's that interpretation of cardinals. I love cardinals. I've never seen a cardinal. We don't get them over here, unfortunately. Mm. And in, well, in ancient Egypt, at least, the vulture is associated with Mut. So the vulture goddess is a mother goddess. So she's eating a pigeon. Pigeons are, I don't know, it depends on your attitude towards pigeons. What's your attitude towards pigeons? Are you like a flying rats person or are you like, if you think they were flying rats, you'd actually think they're a really beautiful type person? Yeah, I think that they're beautiful. They've never bothered me when I've been around them before. Well, that's interesting. It's like, it seems like, it seems like they may have been symbols to help you wake up in a dream because they're like very dramatic 
And like you say, they're larger than life. They were there to like awaken your lucidity, I think, and sort of act as triggers to lucidity. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I always think that the dreamer is the best dream interpreter. I think birds are, because I've been in the young, because I was in the young ornithologist club and I've always been really into birds. That's something that always make me become lucid because I love looking at them and, and being able to see them close up and having that kind of omnipotent vision that you have in lucid dreams kind of deepens the experience of it as well. Yeah. Well, that's so cool. I mean, and again, it's like, you know, is this like a synchronicity that's happening? The fact that we're talking this morning, I've never dreamt of birds like this before. I mean, really? I've seen birds now, but just to share with you, my mom is in spirit. So interesting that the red cardinal came. And I know that that is a symbol sometimes, but I didn't know about the vulture, but that's related to the mother as well. And uh, yeah. And then the pigeon, I used to have these pigeons that would come outside of my healing room in this other office that I had and they would kind of like coo and they were like, they were sweet. They were super sweet. And I didn't care that they were there. Their feathers would fly around all the time and, you know, they'd make noises. But so maybe it's just kind of that connection of, you know, giving this example too, and you being able to share that. And it's just like an extenuation, right? Of the dream state into the waking state. And here we are having this conversation. You have the connection with the birds, you know, it's, I don't know. I love that. I mean, I'm always asking people if they dream about birds. So that's, Really interesting to me because it's one of my main things, birds and springs. Wow. Wow. Very cool. All right. So tell me a little bit more about Egypt and the sleep incubations, maybe some of the work that you're doing with Rupert Sheldrake, if you'd like to talk about that. there's You also kind of talked about in your book too, I was asking you how to pronounce this before we got on, but there is an Egyptian goddess connected to... Uh, that one's, that one's actually the ancient Greek goddess. Oh, the ancient Greek. I mean, there are Greek goddesses associated with yeah. uh, lucid dreaming, I think, but perhaps not in ways that Egyptologists have, have been able to unpack, really, because I know two experts, like Egyptologists who specialize in dream texts and dream interpretations and inscriptions. And so, I mean, I'm learning hieroglyphs, but it's something that I think you'll never finish learning because it's a massive subject. There's so many different symbols and so many different, you know, it went for such an incredibly long period of time that the kind of language changed over time as well. So it's a huge subject that you'll never get to the bottom of. Uh, the people that I know that specialize in dream texts are Luigi Prada, who's an Egyptologist, I think at the University of Lund now in Sweden, and Kasia Zapakowska, who's retired, but she's a sort of roving Egyptologist who goes all over the place. She's from Canada originally. She's fantastic. And she specializes in nightmares and sort of dream demons and is incredible. But talking to both of them, because I've interviewed both of them, I've spoken to them on numerous occasions, neither of them have like great dream lives. And so when I read some of these translations, I can really relate to the experiences. But Kasha did tell me that she has a lot of nightmares. And I think so she's interested in the nightmares because she has nightmares. And Luigi says he doesn't remember his dreams. Or, you know, when I last spoke to him, he said he doesn't really remember his dreams. So I always found it interesting that they would pursue that. I mean, I get it with Kasha because she has nightmares. So it's interesting for her to explore that. But um, when you when I read some of these descriptions of dreams and what's called a divine dream in ancient Egypt, where a god or a goddess visits someone in the dream state, I can really relate to it because they describe this kind of like deep heart-centered feeling of bliss, joy, and ecstasy, which is what I associate with lucidity. So I really get this feeling that those dreams were lucid and that they were given this 
special categorization because they had that embodied ecstatic feeling associated with them. And so some dreams in the ancient world needed interpretation. There were like riddles like ours might do these days when our dreams tried to communicate with us through symbols or words. And But some of them needed no translation and no interpretation because they were just obviously divine. And those are the ones that I'm most interested in because I think... I think that they're really, I think they have the potential to be hugely healing. I actually think that in the imaginal realm, the experience of being in, ex- inspired and infused with bliss and ecstasy is a healing event. And if you can somehow orchestrate that and design that experience that you could target particular illnesses or you could st- certain conditions that you want to promote in the human body. So I think, you know, everyone knows when you wake up from a bad dream, if you wake up from a terrible nightmare, you feel awful for ages. And if you wake up from an ecstatic dream, you feel amazing for ages. So definitely feeling good and being in that happy, great euphoric state can only be good. Like, you know, I mean, obviously there are all sorts of mental health conditions where you can feel euphoric for all the wrong reasons, but I just think that good, that good feeling that you get from having a wonderful dream is a great foundation for implementing healing measures or activating the self-healing response in the body as well. I mean, it's proven that the placebo effect works and that faith healing responses can be activated by belief, the power of belief. So what more powerful experience could you possibly have than a lucid dream where you think you've been healed by a divine figure by a god or a goddess. I mean, I just think that in that in that state, your mind and bo- body are so deeply entangled that you can activate these self-healing mechanisms. Because one other thing that happens in the dream state or in the sleep state is you have genes associated with homeostasis activated, which are ordinarily dormant. So you have this great opportunity if you experience something in the dream state that is feels healing and feels euphoric for your body to try to match that somehow. I often compare it to if you have an erotic lucid dream, you're able to orgasm in the dream. So your body is trying to biophysically match that dream content and that essentially imaginal experience. But your body is, is trying to match that experience because it thinks it's really happening. Hmm. So would we... Use our intent. You know, is there intention to set before you enter into sleep? Like, say, if somebody is working on a medical condition or they want to meet a god or a goddess, how important is our state of mind before we enter into sleep to try to activate this or practice this and get it to happen? I think that's exactly what it's all about: is setting the intention, and and ultimately, that's all incubation is: setting a really powerful intention to have a desired dream. And in the ancient world, of course, they built giant temples dedicated to this, but you can absolutely do it in your own bedroom. If you want to achieve something particular in a dream, I would suggest writing it down, thinking about it, preparing yourself ritually, like adding some sort of ceremony and real commitment to having this dream that you want. And like, say, for example, I've been doing this precognitive study and sometimes I can get lazy if I don't have lucid dreams for a while. I might not record my dreams and then I can go through like a, a dry spell of not remembering them so much. And then when I start writing them down and when I start remembering them again and putting more effort into it, then I get it back. So where I've been doing this precognitive dream study, every night before I go to bed, I write down, right, tonight I'm going to have dreams. I'm going to hit this target. I did get the target right, by the way, as well. I'm going to hit this target. I'm going to be shown the target image on Wednesday. 
I am going to dream about that target image tonight. I'm going to remember all of my dreams and I'm going to write them all down. And then, I mean, it's, you know, in the ancient, especially in ancient Egypt and across the ancient world, really, writing was considered to be magic and writing is considered to be a form of sort of manifestation. It's a spell. So if you write something down, it happens. It kind of gets into your mind. Though I do think that it's, it sounds so simple, but it works. If you write down exactly what you want to dream about, if you write down where you want to go, and then expand upon that so that when you're lying down in bed, I mean, quite often I will try to always start the night by lying on my back and kind of actively going into the dream. So kind of imagining myself drifting into the dream space. And as you're drifting into the dream space, often I describe it, you know, you go through that hypnagogic phase before you go into sleep properly and you're aware of some little flashes of inspiration that come into your mind during this phase, just during that phase, as you're kind of like Alice falling down the rabbit hole, I think that's the sort of neatest analogy really to that experience because it does feel like you're floating down a rabbit hole sometimes. Try to just hold on to your awareness as you're drifting through that space. And it's a bit like having a soft focus, a bit like looking at one of those magic eye paintings from the 80s where it's a certain way of looking through and into the dream experience. And one thing that I often say to people in workshops with regards to lucidity Lots of people have lucid experiences, but they get so excited that they wake themselves up and they're on the verge of waking anyway. And it's very easy to like just become fully awake. So my suggestion for people then, and, and this is something that people have talked about for years, is when you find yourself in that, I'm excited, I'm lucid, I could wake up any minute, is put all of your energy and attention into moving your dream body. So like slowly moving your dream body through the space. Because one thing with dreaming, I notice is that it's all about motion. It's all about moving through space. And it's not like a narrative linear mo- movement. It's more like a self-generating AI algorithmic type motion. So you're just constantly generating content all the time and you're moving through that content. So if you can keep your dream body moving, then that that focuses your attention in the dream person and not the person lying in bed. So that can be useful. Um, but yeah, I, I do things like I always have a shower or I haven't got a bath anymore, unfortunately, but I would much rather have a bath. Like I would always have some sort of purification ritual. I would always smell nice. I always have really nice bedding. I always have a clean and tidy bedroom. I always have like dark atmospheric lights in my bedroom as well. There are I like to have like plenty of fresh air. One thing that I would say is really important is not being hot at night. If you get hot at night, it can often give you nightmares. One thing I'm incredibly against is memory foam mattresses. I think they are poisonous and toxic and they should never be used. They're like, encourage you to get boiling hot in the night and that's not good for you. And they have no breathability either. Like they're just, no matter what any of those manufacturers say, like no memory foam mattresses, like breathable. It's just like sleeping rubber. So, so yeah, there's so many different things you could do. I've got lots of tips on my website actually. And I have some weird tips as well because because I think so much of the lucid dreaming experience and kind of state of mind is about memory. And improve if you improve your memory, and you think about how you're existing in the world all the time and you philosophize and you talk about childhood memories, you vividly remember things. 
I think you can increase your chances of lucid dreaming. So there are things like, that sounds weird, but playing Scrabble seems to increase lucid episodes for me. And I think it's something about there's this sort of future mem- remembering that happens when you play Scrabble. You know, I was talking about this the other day. When you see like your seven tiles in your trough and you know that you've got a seven letter word, but you're not quite sure consciously what that seven letter word is yet. You have this kind of future memory. And that experience of future memory seems to be really sympathetic to the lucid dreaming experience. So anything you can do to encourage that. And it's things like um, quizzes when you test yourself on knowledge that you know is in your mind. And, you know, when you have ideas or you have names on the tip of your tongue, like someone says, do you remember this thing? And you're like, oh, I do remember that. What's it called? What's it called? And when it's when it's that on the tip of your tongue, that's the kind of state of consciousness that seems to be really useful for getting into the lucid dream experience because you're like really using your brain to think and to remember stuff. And this is why I think Mnemosyne, who is the ancient Greek goddess of remembrance, divine remembrance, importantly as well, and of remembrance as being a kind of divine inspiration. So you're not just remembering stuff, you're remembering that you're a divine part of the cosmos because she is the daughter of heaven and earth. So she has this celestial element to her and her role in the Orphic Mysteries is to remind the deceased that they actually come from the stars. So the remembering that Mnemosyne is the kind of patron saint of, to me, is this lucid remembering oneself in the dream state and remembering that you're a divine being beyond the boundaries of your human body. Because one thing about lucidity, you realize when you're in the dream state and you're lucid, you realize that you're not just a dream avatar. You're not a body plonked into space. You are the entire space, the entire world. And you have this incredible, expansive feeling of feeling yourself in every kind of tiny fiber of this other world, which is why lucid dreaming feels so ecstatic, I think, because it's absolutely breaking the boundaries of human physical form and experiencing the whole world. Yeah. And you know, I, it just feels like to me, it's a topic just similar to learning the hieroglyphics that it's you're never going to learn at all. Right. It's just this constant learning and exploring and seeking and finding new stuff. It's it's like so expansive to be able to, you know, move into I this. I guess that's the thing, isn't it? It's like the secret to learning anything is that you're never going to learn. Right. So. You know, I, I was talking recently about, I, I, I'm interested in dream epiphanies because that's something I have a lot, but it's something I had a lot more when I was younger, when I was trying to make sense of the world, when I thought there was an answer to everything. So I used to have these dream epiphanies quite a lot. And I remember one in particular that has really stuck with me where I was exploring some place that I often go to in my dreams or I'm not so much, I don't go so much there anymore because it was a school and it was this big, it was this big kind of high rise, ugly school building with a sort of chain link fence around it. And I, and it was on the edge of a jungle and you had to go through a dirt path to get into this jungle. Then there was this little shed where they kept flatfishes and all these little things I remember from this dream place. But I remember walking along this dirt path once and this school was on my left hand side and on the side of the building, someone had written in algebra, the secret of the universe. And so that's really funny to me because that shows my kind of immature sense of what I thought the secret of the universe could possibly be, that this algebra is like that, you know, I didn't understand. There wasn't very good at maths. But when I looked at this algebra code in my dream, I had this like brain gasm and I was like, I know the secret of the universe and it's this algebra. And that was like my brain trying to find like visual 
uh, cues, I guess, to make sense of why I was having this like fantastic euphoric experience. As I remember waking up from that dream and trying to remember the algebra and trying to write it down. And now that dream is, is funny to me because it's, that's me trying to make sense of the world. And I think that's what dreams are. They're, they're helping you beyond, beyond that scope of being potentially opening us to a collective unconscious experience. The biggest part of them, I think, is helping us make sense of who and where and why we are. And if you think about babies spend such a considerable amount of time of their sleep in REM, it's, I think, because they're trying to make sense of who and where they are and what their story is. And um, when I talked to Rebecca Sharrock, who has this highly superior autobiographical memory, the, I mean, I was so interested to talk to her when Anthony told me, I said, oh, this is great, Anthony. It means that all of her dreams will be lucid because being lucid is remembering, like it's memory. And I was so excited to ask her this question because for me, it was like a real penny dropping. Like this could, this, this is the sort of answer to what lucid dreaming is all about. And she went, yeah, I can remember all of my dreams. I'm always lucid. And then I said, oh, I have to, like one of these things that happened to me that I really want to ask you about because you remember it. So it's like, you're such a great person to ask is I remember kids from being, I remember dreams as a toddler that were all white. And then as I got older, they got filled in with more content. And she was like, yep, I had the all white dreams as well. So that was really validating for me because I wasn't sure whether I imagined it or I'd seen it somewhere. But when we got chatting on the subject, we had a very similar experience of dreams being kind of filled in and developed over time. Wow. I can't wait to go back and listen to your podcast with her. That sounds yeah, that, amazing. That's great. So that's one of the consciousness hours. And I think we ended up chatting to her twice because it was so... It was wow. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation that we had today. And I'd like you to give my guests or listeners, I'm sorry, your website and where they can find those great tips that you have and any other information that you'd like to share if you have any classes that are coming up or anything else that you'd like my listeners to know. Go ahead and let them know. Right, well, the, the big project that I'm working on at the moment is an event, a week-long event in Athens at the end of October this year called Dream Palace. And that's going to be a kind of creative symposium, essentially. So I want it to be informative and educational, but I also want it to be like deeply creative and imaginal. And I think dreams are perfect for this. I think human beings are craving like myth and story as well as knowledge and information. So dreams are the perfect vehicle because they can be perceived as purely scientific, but they can also be obvious examples of how creative human beings can be. So this is going to take place in Athens at the end of October. It's the 17th to 23rd, I think. And you can find out everything about all the various different projects I'm doing on my website, which is themysteries.org. And I've just finished a course on dream mapping, which is kind of a sort of next level dream journaling where you actually create kind of dream cartography and you you actively incubate and design new dream structures and just sort of think more consciously about the various spaces that you explore when you do dream. So yeah, there's lots of stuff going on and I'm probably going to be doing like more dream pilgrimage work with Rupert Sheldrake and the British Pilgrimage Trust soon as well, because a lot of people have expressed an interest in that. So yeah. Wow. Fantastic. Well, good luck with getting these dream temples up. You know, I think it's important. And, and I, I hope for all of you that are listening that this makes you think a little more deeply about your dreams. And if you are, are a person that's not having them and you want to experience what she's talking about, check out her website. We will put all that information in the show notes. And, and maybe this will also encourage you to start your own little dream journal and start documenting and do some more exploring. 
So thank you, everyone. And thank you, Sarah, so much for being a guest on the Path 11 podcast today. I hope you are all doing well, and I hope you have great dreams tonight. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the Path 11 podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Path 11 TV. Visit path11tv.com to start a seven-day free trial of exclusive video content on consciousness, healing, and life after death. That's path11tv.com. And be sure to use coupon code PODCAST30 to take 30% off your annual membership. Start satisfying your spiritual curiosity with a membership to Path 11 TV today. Bye for now.